Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. Each episode within this podcast series, we delve into a different medical topic with an expert speaker to join us. If you want to find more about the Royal College, then please do head over to the RCPE website and have a look at the education stream and see if membership would work for you. It offers a host of educational updates and activities such as the evening medical updates, the Royal College Symposia and many more. Please don't forget if you listen to our podcast to give us a rating on one of the podcast platforms or subscribe so that it can come directly into your podcast stream. Welcome to this episode of the RTPE Clinical Conversations podcast titled Spontaneous Bleeding. My name is Edward Fu, fifth year medical student at the University of Edinburgh and student observer on the RCPE Trainees and Members Committee. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Andrew Page, consultant haematologist based at the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh and the current director of the Edinburgh Haemophilia Centre. It's a real pleasure to have you here, Dr. Page, and thank you for taking the time to come and speak to us. I was wondering if you'd be able to briefly introduce yourself and the work that you do to our listeners. First of all, thank you very much to the RCPE and to you for inviting me. Yes, so as you said, I'm a consultant haematologist. I've been working in Edinburgh over the last decade now. I trained in haematology here and then have gone on to have a specialist interest in bleeding disorders. And allied to that, prior to getting into medicine, I did some scientific research, did a PhD in genetics, and actually I've carried that interest through in my current working life. So I front the clinical lead for the Scottish Bleeding Disorders Genetics Service. And alongside that, I have an additional interest in thrombosis, and that pretty much covers my professional work. That's really, really interesting to hear, and I'm sure you'd be able to offer some really interesting insights given your dual background. Let's jump right into it then. I suppose a good place to start would be, what are some common ways that bleeding disorders present in patients, and how would we go about classifying these? Sure. Okay, so I guess how bleeding disorders present also nicely leads into the classification because it depends on the severity and type of bleeding disorder, how they will present. But severe inherited bleeding disorders will generally present in relatively early life. Often there'll be a family history, we'll know to expect the risk of a bleeding disorder in a neonate and testing will be done either antenatally or perinatally. And so you can make an initial diagnosis. And indeed in that setting, hopefully you can avoid any clinical sequelae of that bleeding disorder by managing it appropriately. Alternatively, if it's not a known case, then you might have a classic presentation with umbilical stump bleeding near birth or bleeding at times of early hemostatic challenges like immunizations, though I have to say in my experience that's not a big bleeding challenge, bleeding at times circumcision, that's probably a much more common way for things to present. Or alternatively, when children are starting to pull up, start walking, and they start putting weight through their limbs and through their joints, and then particularly things like severe haemophilia might start presenting at that point. With milder bleeding disorders, presentation will generally be in later life. We may well know about family history again, so you might diagnose in early life, but often it'll be at initial bleeding challenges, for example, first periods in girls or at time of dental extraction, or potentially even in later life with milder bleeding disorders at times of surgical challenges, sometimes just because somebody decided to do a clotting screen and there was an abnormality on that and we'll go on to diagnose a bleeding disorder from there. 
acquired bleeding disorders. I guess it's when they develop the bleeding disorder, and that's a very variable feast. But the most common symptom with an acquired bleeding disorder that we will recognize is very obviously pathological bruising or multifocal recurrent bleeding from unexpected minor challenges. As I alluded to, it leads on to classification, and I've already touched on classifying by severity or acquired versus congenital bleeding disorders or inherited bleeding disorders. I guess the main other way in which we classify these things is disorders of primary hemostasis versus secondary hemostasis versus, well, if we ever diagnose them, disorders of fibrinolysis. So those are probably the broad categories that we put them into. Thanks very much, and I suppose that's helpful as well in terms of setting a framework in our heads on how to approach these conditions. I suppose it might also be helpful at this stage to talk about primary versus secondary hemostasis, and I was wondering if you'd be able to give us a brief overview of both. Yeah, absolutely. So certainly conventionally, we think of these things as being in distinct phases. And the primary hemostasis is the process that happens immediately after vessel injury, where you get vasoconstriction, platelet activation, and formation of a platelet plug. Secondary hemostasis is the formation of fibrin clot or cross-linked fibrin clot, if we end up be really pedantic about it, by activation of the coagulation system. That said, it really is a bit of an artificial distinction we know that there's a lot of crosstalk between the different pathways. And so, for instance, von Willebrand factor is required for platelet activation, but it's also required for stabilization of factor eight, which is one of the coagulation factors. Platelet activation results in release of multiple coagulation factors like factor five to drive further coagulation, and platelets themselves provide a phospholipid surface for coagulation to happen on. So, we put these artificial distinctions in place because it fits with the clinical disorders that we see. Disorders of primary hemostasis have one bleeding pattern, which is classically mucocutaneous, whilst disorders of coagulation, classically things like hemophilia, where you have a tendency to joint bleeding or soft tissue bleeding or surgical bleeding. So they do give different clinical presentations. But as I say, it's not really an accurate reflection of the biology that it's primary then secondary hemostasis. Following on from what we've discussed so far then, when should we suspect a bleeding disorder? So I think it depends, again, what kind of bleeding disorder you're talking about. But I think most of the time when we're thinking about bleeding disorders, we're really driving at, does this patient have an inherited bleeding disorder most of the time? It's important to set that against the backdrop of the knowledge that acquired bleeding problems are actually much more common, certainly in the adult population. But when should we be expecting an inherited bleeding disorder? I think you would say all of those classic early life presentations that I went through before would be strong indicators. So particularly abnormal bleeding patterns and spontaneous hemarthrosis in a young person is a bleeding disorder until proven otherwise. Then I think when you're actually seeing a patient in front of you and you're taking a history from them, it's really helpful to try to take a structured bleeding history to really pin down, is this bleeding pattern abnormal? Does this person have more bleeding than you would expect? And we've got to remember that we're dealing with bleeding, which is something that all of us will experience. So bleeding symptoms are universal or near universal, and it's defining what's 
abnormal. There is a helpful tool called the ISTH bleeding assessment tool, which is widely used amongst hematologists and increasingly used amongst non-hematologists to try to really structure a bleeding history. And it goes through multiple systems of bleeding. So menstrual bleeding, cutaneous bleeding, epistaxis, and so on to give a really structured approach to taking that history and a score which you can define as normal or abnormal. As I say, above and beyond that, really atypical bleeding events need thinking about. And I guess the other things that I would say in the patients who I see who've been referred with a possible bleeding disorder, a family history makes me think this may well be something. And surgical or post-dental extraction bleeding are two really strong indicators. So if a patient has been through multiple procedures and has not bled, then my suspicion that that patient has a bleeding disorder is significantly lower. The final thing is, if you've done a clotting screen for some reason and it's abnormal, then you've got to wonder whether that patient's got a bleeding disorder. That's helpful to know. And I think we've explored the diagnostics of it quite well. I wanted to then ask you about treatment and how the outlook of treatment has changed considering the explosion of options that we now have available to us. Yeah, so absolutely. It's been a phenomenally exciting time to be a doctor who specializes in bleeding disorders in recent years. And again, it's important to define which people have benefited from the recent changes. We're really talking about people with severe bleeding disorders who've had major sea changes in the way that they're managed. So we have a whole array of new products that mean that where previously, and even these are relatively recent advances, but previously we were talking about children with hemophilia A having to take coagulation factors having to take factor eight intravenous infusions every 48 hours or so to prevent spontaneous bleeding. So a really high burden of treatment. And imagine trying to do that to a four-year-old child who is really not understanding the rationale for it. It was a pretty awful process for many families to go through. And we've had multiple developments. So we've gone on to have extended half-life clotting factors, which last in the case of hemophilia B, you can now treat once every three weeks with one of the products that we use, where it would have been at least, well, of the order of two to three times a week previously. In hemophilia A, those products have maybe not been quite so revolutionary, but nonetheless, there are things coming where we're looking at once weekly factor infusions, probably. Then there have been non-factor treatments, and these have been revolutionary. There's a drug called emicizumab or Hemlibra, which for severe hemophilia A has been absolutely life-changing for a significant proportion of the patients. They now take up to once monthly subcut injections, which essentially render them free from spontaneous or minimally traumatic bleeding in the majority of people. And so I have patients coming in who've started on this treatment in their 50s and say that they have almost forgotten their bleeding disorder, despite having lived the life of somebody with severe hemophilia for five decades before that. And now they're coming in and saying, this is no longer my priority. I am able to get on with my life. It's been truly wonderful to see. Going forwards, we've got gene therapy on the horizon. The FDA has licensed gene therapy for people with severe hemophilia B, and I would imagine that European licensing is not very far away. So we're beginning to look at potentially, we use the word cautiously, but curative options for people with bleeding disorders. And this is going to be the next step in evolution of practice. What does that leave for somebody like me who specializes in bleeding disorders to do, you might ask? Well, I think there are still the mild bleeding disorders, and actually it's very unlikely that we're going to be offering gene therapy, or at least for a very long time, 
it'll be the case that we're unlikely to offer gene therapy for milder bleeding disorders. And then it'll be managing people who have episodic bleeding at times of challenges like surgery or dental extraction, or even when trying to play sports, that kind of thing. And it will be a question of prioritizing these people and what their lifestyle demands are, rather than historically the approach of mainly worrying about people with severe hemophilia and trying to keep people from major joint harm or even dying from bleeding. That all sounds really, really promising. I wanted to shift our focus more towards acute presentations. How do we go about approaching the consultation of a patient who presents to emergency services for bleeding disorder? So somebody who's coming to an emergency consultation with a bleeding disorder, I think the thing to say is that certainly people with more severe bleeding disorders, classical symptomology can still represent bleeding. So by that, I mean, if somebody presents with left iliac fossa pain or something like that, then yes, of course, you need to think, does this person have a classic presentation of an ovarian cyst or something? But actually, we had a recent patient who had exactly that presentation and had a rectus sheath hemoglobin. You can have a gynae hemorrhage, which is atypical in women with bleeding disorders. So hemorrhagic cysts are a common intra-abdominal or a cause of an acute abdomen in our patients. But obviously, you have to exclude the usual differentials as well. So atypical presentations of bleeding, you certainly need to think about. Another thing I would say is that, and this is possibly something that's not uniformly done well, is musculoskeletal problems in people with bleeding disorders are much, much, much more likely to represent bleeding than they would in other people. So I have a number of patients who've turned up to A&E with calf pain and swelling and have gone down the query DVT pathway and actually have subsequently after, well, in a couple of instances, being given a single dose of an anticoagulant, which was probably not the best thing, being shown to have intramuscular hematomas. So MSK presentations of people with hemophilia or clotting disorders, absolutely bleeding until proven otherwise, though you still do have to go down the other diagnostic routes as well. And I would always encourage people to listen to the patient with a bleeding disorder because actually they're experts in their own conditions. These are rare conditions where the patient is much more likely to have significant knowledge of the likely complications and the urgency of treatment than the doctor seeing unless they happen to be a specialist in bleeding disorders. So I would urge people to listen to the patient. And if they're saying they're worried it's bleeding, then take that on board. Other than that, of course, if bleeding has been excluded, then if a patient's needing surgical intervention, you need to be liaising with hematology for a safe plan of how to perform surgery on such a patient. But the other standard differentials will apply and you just need to assess your patient appropriately. If you come across a thrombotic problem in somebody with a bleeding disorder, you definitely need to be phoning a specialist to work out what you do with that, because even the specialist may not know off the top of their head what you're going to do with that problem. You know, based on what I'm hearing from you so far, it's a combination of high clinical suspicion and listening to your patients that really makes a difference. And of course, knowing to phone like a specialist is probably going to make sure that we do the best that we can for our patients. And I suppose similarly, I wanted to ask you as well about your approach to patients with spontaneous bruising and or menorrhagia. 
Yeah. Okay. So I'd say probably the bulk of referrals to my clinic are with easy bruising and it is really difficult to pin down easy bruising and what is pathological and what is normal. Bruising, abnormal bruising or bruising more than expected is reported by a significant proportion of the population. Statistically, I guess 50% of people bruise more than expected, but it is a very frequently reported symptom. Defining what's pathological is difficult even for a bleeding disorder specialist, but I would say that bruising that's confined to the legs is usually not pathological. There will be cases where there is very clearly very abnormal bruising on somebody's legs, but multiple small bruises on the legs is a frequent presenting complaint. And people may not know how that's happened, but inevitably that will be minor trauma that's happening in day-to-day life that people aren't noticing. And okay, they might bruise slightly easier than average, but it's not indicative of major pathology. That said, easy bruising in combination with other bleeding symptoms begins to become maybe slightly more strongly associated with bleeding disorders. So you've picked the second most common reason for referral to my clinic, which is menorrhagia. And clearly, again, it's a question of defining what is abnormal menstrual bleeding. It is very difficult. People don't talk about periods very much or as much as they perhaps should and don't have a good comparison for how heavy their periods are. A structured menstrual history is a good idea. There are scoring systems for heaviness of menstrual bleeding, which are out there if people want to Google them. But again, if somebody is reporting heavy menstrual bleeding, then it certainly is something that is under-treated in the general population. There are multiple good treatments, even for menstrual bleeding, that is problematic regardless of whether it is heavier than average or not and are underutilized. So I would encourage GPs out there to think about treating menstrual bleeding if a patient is presenting regardless of whether they feel the bleeding is abnormal or not. But a combination of heavier than average menstrual bleeding and easy bruising. As I said before, I would do a structured bleeding history. I'd calculate an ISTH bleeding assessment tool score. But that combination, I am very likely to be at least going on to some further investigations. Clearly want to get a family history and find out the time course of their histories because a acquired problems versus inherited problems are very different. So menorrhagia from menarche is a key trigger to think about, is this a bleeding disorder? But new onset heavy menstrual bleeding in your 40s is much more likely to be due to a gynecological cause like fibroids. So it's patterns of bleeding when they start and adding up multiple symptoms and seeing if you're getting towards suspicion of a bleeding disorder. In terms of investigations, well, easy bruising, menstrual bleeding, they're both a suggestive of a disorder of primary hemostasis. So you absolutely want to do a routine full blood count in such a patient. And I would suggest doing a coagulation screen for people presenting with bleeding symptoms. A coagulation screen is not a very good test, and we can come back to that at some point. But if you find an abnormality on a coagulation screen in the context of bleeding symptoms, your suspicion of a bleeding disorder has gone right up. On top of that, I personally will be checking for von Willebrand's disease, which is the commonest, well, still is the most diagnosed single bleeding disorder in the general population. About one in 200 people have a diagnosis of von Willebrand's disease. And that is something that we don't routinely check in the community or outside of specialist clinics. But actually, if you've got somebody in front of you with a very clear history that you are worried about and you speak to a hematologist, the first line specialist testing would be von Willebrand's testing. 
After that, I would be checking a whole raft of coagulation factor tests because they're easy to do, but really the next most important test is platelet function testing, assuming we've not found anything else, because again, this is sounding like a disorder of primary hemostasis, and that is really von Willebrand factor, platelets, and collagen that I'm worried about. And so platelet function testing is something exclusively available within a specialist hematology clinic, and you need to be referring to your local bleeding disorder specialists in order to access that kind of testing. I suppose as a quick follow-up question to that, then mm-hmm. what's involved in platelet function testing? So platelet function testing, we basically take patient platelets. They have to be handled very carefully because platelets are very easy things to provoke. Blood samples are taken into citrate anticoagulated tubes, which is what we use for clotting tests anyway. So it stops the platelets from being activated because it takes the calcium out of them. We add back some calcium and we add in some signaling molecules and we add a whole raft of signaling molecules. Then we shine light through it, stir it, and watch how quickly the platelets come together. So how quickly the absorbance changes in response to a bunch of different chemicals. And that's things like arachidonic acid, ADP, collagen, a whole raft of things. And then you have to have specialist interpretation. The reason that it is only available as a specialist test is the samples are so flaky that we take blood and they have to be hand delivered to the lab and the test has to be running within 30 minutes. So yeah, it's a technically challenging test to do. On top of that, you need a specialist to interpret it. Platelet disorders or disorders of platelet function are collectively probably the second biggest group of bleeding disorders in the general population. It's a little bit difficult to be certain about that, but probably that's right. But they're very underdiagnosed because they're extremely hard to test for. It's worthwhile being aware that there are a number of conditions which result in highly abnormal bleeding, which you cannot pick up on a routine set of laboratory tests. Severe von Willebrand disease would normally cause an abnormality of clotting, but mild von Willebrand disease won't. Platelet function abnormalities do not cause any abnormality of platelet count or coagulation screen. And there are a couple of clotting factors. Factor 13 and alpha-2 antiplasmin are the two that we can test for. There are probably some others as well, but very rare disorders, but can have very severe bleeding phenotypes. So if you have a patient who is clearly bleeding very abnormally, then do discuss this with a hematologist, even if they've got a normal full blood count and a normal coag screen. I wanted to ask you as well, with regards to considering anticoagulants are some of the most prescribed medications out there, how bleeding problems in people taking anticoagulants tend to present? So the easy thing to say is that the commonest clinically significant site of bleeding is the GI tract for people on anticoagulation. That said, people who have anticoagulation may well present with easy bruising, epistaxis, all of these other things. But GI bleeding is the most likely thing to lead to hospital attendance because of bleeding whilst on anticoagulation. And bleeding, intracranial hemorrhage is clearly the one that we worry about. It's not a common occurrence in people taking anticoagulants, but it is common enough that we will all see it fairly frequently within a medical career if we're working in a hospital environment. And it's something that is an absolute emergency because you want to do everything that you can to reduce the risk of permanent disability or death as a result of that bleeding and taking the anticoagulation out of the picture seems like a very sensible thing to do in that setting. With regards to what we can do for these patients to correct for any coagulation abnormalities, what are the options out there and what should we be thinking about when we're faced with a case like this? Sure. So I guess the first thing to say is 
what drug are they taking or what anticoagulant are they taking and when did they last take it? Some anticoagulants that we use have a very short duration of action, particularly things like IV heparin or IV ergatraban. These things tend to only be used in hospital inpatients and generally only in the setting of very high bleeding risk or something else that means that we want something that can be switched off immediately. Normally, for bleeding on ergatraban, which is a relatively rarely used anticoagulant, you can't do anything but switch it off and wait. But switching it off and waiting will sort things out within around four hours or so. IV heparin, we don't normally have to do anything about it. Again, it will reverse itself or the body will get rid of it, will metabolize it within around four hours. That said, if you have critical bleeding in a patient who's been on IV heparin, particularly if they've had high doses of IV heparin, you can think about giving a drug called protamine. If it's more than four hours afterwards, you check a coagulation screen, but it's almost certainly gone. For other drugs, so low molecular weight heparins, they have a bit of a longer half-life. They're likely to be causing clinically significant levels of anticoagulation for 24 hours or so after a therapeutic dose. So again, when was the last dose? Does the patient have renal dysfunction, which delays clearance? And if you're not sure, you can actually do an assay for how much low molecular weight heparin the patient still has in their system. Again, protamine can be used to partially reverse low molecular weight heparin. It is not a perfect antidote. But if somebody's bleeding to death in front of you, then absolutely, it's a reasonable thing to try. Warfarin, we have very nice established pathways for what to do with people bleeding on warfarin. It depends on severity of bleeding and INR. Timing of the last dose doesn't really matter, but INR gives you an instant readout of the level of anticoagulation that warfarin's achieving. And depending on that result and severity of bleeding, you might think about reversing with vitamin K and or Beriplex. Or you might do nothing if they have very minor bleeding and a fairly standardly therapeutic or a low INR. The group of drugs where there's, I guess, the most interest, partly because they're the most commonly used anticoagulants in the general population, and partly because there have been recent developments of the direct oral anticoagulants. So that is apixaban, rivaroxaban, and edoxaban being the anti-10A inhibitors, and then the bigotran, which is a direct thrombin inhibitor. They now all have reversal agents. We've had reversal agent for dabigatran for some time. Again, the key here is it's an expensive drug. It certainly is effective in a laboratory sense at reversing the effect of dabigatran. And likewise, with the anti-10A inhibitors, we have a licensed reversal agent for apixaban and rivaroxaban, and one that we suspect will probably work for edoxaban, though it's not licensed. It's all about only using that drug, which is very expensive when it's clinically appropriate. And that use has been restricted to life or limb threatening bleeding when there's going to be clinically relevant amounts of that anticoagulant in the patient's system. And so that's all about timing of last dose. And if you're not sure, then you can do drug levels. Clearly, if somebody is bleeding to death in front of you and you are almost entirely sure that they have taken that anticoagulant within a clinically relevant time frame, then you'll want to be reversing it. And we do go with the best history that we can get rather than waiting for drug levels. But you do have to go through a consultant hematologist to access these drugs because that is certainly within NHS Lodi and that's how things have been decided. And I suspect in many health boards that will be the case. And then it's a question of knowing your local policies for how you access those drugs in an emergency because clearly time is critical in that kind of situation. But as I say, severity of bleeding, what drug, when was it last taken, and is there anything else that will delay clearance are probably the main questions. 
And we've circled back to our point earlier about phoning a friendly hematologist to, to get advice and to be quite aware of what the local guidelines are. I think that's going to be a good way of approaching these problems. Speaking of problems, then, any illustrative cases of people presenting with bleeding problems that you might like to share with our listeners? Yeah, sure. So I think probably the commonest scenario that we come across outside the bleeding on anticoagulation cases, the commonest scenario that we'll come across for a new bleeding disorder effectively, it's not considered a bleeding disorder, presenting via emergency services would be an acute presentation of ITP. So that's immune thrombocytopenia purpura. So this is an autoimmune condition that will often present with a de novo, very low platelet count. And with that, the bleeding manifestations are those that are typical for primary hemostatic disorders. So mucocutaneous bleeding is the classic pattern. Actually, really classically, patients present with a particular rash on their legs, predominantly on their legs, it can be all over, and potentially blood blisters in their mouth can have bleeding symptoms like epistaxis, heavy periods. But I think the one thing I would say is always beware the headache in the patient with ITP. It's an intracranial bleed until proven otherwise. And we have had a couple of local cases where patients have reported headache whilst admitted with ITP, in fact, and have come to serious harm before it was recognized that that was a critical symptom to be addressing in a patient with ITP. So yeah, the classic presentation, as I say, particular rash, mucosal bleeding, but beware headache. A slightly rarer problem to come across would be acquired haemophilia. But I think haemophilia is not a disease that people think of as being acquired. But again, you can have an autoimmune condition where there is an antibody directed against factor eight, and that leads to profoundly low factor eight levels. And it presents with a slightly unusual bleeding pattern, or at least it presents differently from congenital haemophilia. And I have to say, it's not something that I've ever felt I have managed to get an adequate explanation for, but people who are newly presenting with acquired haemophilia will have largely no antecedent bleeding history and then an acute onset of classically really dramatic bruising. And by bruising, I mean what we would call ecchymoses, so large patches of blood under the skin bleeding into things like the retroperitoneal space or GI bleeding or intracranial bleeding can all be manifestations. But actually, the key here is that a patient presenting with really unexplained bruising and a prolonged APTT, a newly prolonged APTT ideally, but a prolonged APTT if you've never checked a coagulation screen before, has acquired haemophilia until proven otherwise. So if you're faced with that patient with really abnormal bleeding at the front door, then do check a coag screen. If it's abnormal, certainly do discuss with a hematologist. If they've got an isolated prolonged APTT, you can come across as very clever as saying, I'm worried that this might be acquired haemophilia. The hematologist that you're talking to will also be worried that it's acquired haemophilia because it's a very serious bleeding condition. I think on an illustrative case of that, going against what I've just said, I have a nice case of a patient who I still follow up to date who presented for a hysterectomy for large fibroids. She was postmenopausal and hadn't been having anything by way of significant heavy menstrual bleeding. She'd had a tiny bit of PV spotting intermittently over several months but that wasn't a presenting feature. She turned up for her operation and on day, routine bloods were done beforehand, but she went to theatre, I presume, before these were checked. She underwent her total abdominal hysterectomy and wouldn't stop bleeding and really, really, really wouldn't stop bleeding. And then somebody looked at the coagulation screen that had been done preoperatively and noticed that her APTT was 87 seconds or something, but markedly prolonged and phoned a hematologist and 
at that point, we very rapidly worked our way to a diagnosis of acquired hemophilia. So abnormal bleeding in combination with a prolonged APTT is one of the ones that certainly as hematologists, we worry about. A prolonged PT is less of a concern. I'm not saying it can never be associated with a significant bleeding disorder, but yeah, fear the isolated prolonged APDT in the bleeding patient. Definitely words to live by, I think. We're coming to the end of what has been a really interesting, really educational session. And I think it's really helped to demystify a lot of the presentation behind patients with spontaneous bleeding. I just wanted to ask you, Dr. Page, if you had any take-home messages for our listeners. Yeah, I think one take-home message would be be selective about your use of the coagulation screen. It is often checked for not very good reasons and actually an abnormal clotting screen in somebody who doesn't have any bleeding history, doesn't have any reason to suspect a bleeding disorder. It's often not clinically significant. I would not say never clinically significant, but it is generally something that you'll have to seek specialist advice and maybe end up doing multiple tests for where you're not helping your patient. So selectivity in when you do a coag screen, but absolutely do do them in your patient with bleeding symptoms. And as I said, one of my main take-homes is, even though it's a rare condition, beware the prolonged APTT and abnormal bleeding or bruising. I think the other things to say are bleeding disorders as a whole are generally relatively rare conditions. They're not vanishingly rare. You will come across people with bleeding disorders in routine medical practice, but they're not hugely common conditions. Acquired causes of bleeding symptoms are very common. So anticoagulants, renal disease, significant liver disease, thyroid disease, drugs like antiplatelet agents, NSAIDs, and I'll be slightly controversial and say antidepressants. This is a cause of disharmony between me and some other specialist or certainly some psychiatrists who feel that bruising is not caused by antidepressants. But actually, I would agree that most people who take antidepressants don't get bruising. But at my end of things where you're seeing people with abnormal bruising, certainly antidepressants do seem to sometimes worsen easy bruising. So acquired causes of bleeding symptoms are common. Bleeding disorders are rare. If you find an abnormality of clotting screen in combination with bleeding symptoms, then you probably are dealing with a bleeding disorder, or at least it needs investigation. And I think the final thing that I do want people to remember is don't ignore headaches as a symptom in people with ITP or after head injury with a bleeding disorder or on anticoagulation, because an intracranial hemorrhage is something that can rapidly become unsalvageable. So it's much better to have a few false alarms than to falsely reassure yourself that the headache in the ITP patient is because they're sleepless in hospital. Thanks very much. It's been a genuine pleasure having you on the Clinical Conversations podcast. Many thanks. I suppose the key take-home messages are the judicious use of coagulation screens in clinical practice, developing an awareness of what the local guidelines are with regards to bleeding, having a high clinical suspicion in patients with known or possible bleeding disorders, and, when in doubt, to phone a hematologist. Yeah, yeah I think that's a fair summary. If anyone would like to suggest any feedback on this podcast or suggest further topics you might be interested in, then do reach out through the RCPE TNMC Twitter account. Alternatively, we'd welcome any contact through our emails or website too. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>